1: Uh, Welcome to Hotel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Let's start with talking about everybody's favorite topic these days. Political hypocrisy. Oh yeah, I know everybody does it. Everybody's a hypocrite about something somewhere, but this story with Herschel Walker down in Georgia has really brought it out. I want to back up a little bit. People ask about, you know, some of my political leanings, how I got to be the way I am. I think it's instructive for the purposes of this. My first election was the 1998 midterm. Now, for those of you that are a little fuzzy on your history. Uh, that would be the Clinton impeachment midterm. They impeached him the following January. That's very much what was on the ballot. The uh, Republicans had control of the House. They actually lost about 20-some-odd seats, and it wasn't a good election for them, and they plowed ahead with impeachment anyway, and we all know how that went. So we had a couple things going on at once, but for somebody like me who was just getting into politics, that was the first time I got to vote in an election. I was all excited about it. It was a very early and very meaningful education on the fact that hypocrisy runs deep. It's bipartisan and people are people and people are usually corrupt and human nature is undefeated without accountability and guardrails put around it. If you don't remember that time, of course, President Clinton was impeached for perjury and other things for his affairs of Monica Lewinsky. Now, in hindsight, we know a lot more things and a lot more abused women and a lot of other things that went on with Clinton. It is what it is, but you can study that on your own time. But yes, he was lying. He was being a hypocrite. We also learned really quickly that the Republican Party was full of hypocrites, too. Newt Gingrich had to resign the speakership shortly thereafter. Ron Livingston was supposed to replace him. He couldn't even take the chair for an extramarital affair. Another hypocrite. But eventually they settled on Dennis Hazard, who of course wound up in prison for abusing children sexually. Hypocrisy runs deep. It's bipartisan in Washington, D.C. and in politics as a whole. So when you get to something like the Herschel Walker case where he is against abortion and it has come out now that he not only probably and accusedly told this woman to go get an abortion and there's pretty good evidence that he did it. He initially lied and said he didn't know who she was when very clearly he knows who she was. Look, politicians lie all the time. Commentators lie all the time. People lie all the time, whether it's the little white lies where you just try to avoid an argument or just don't want to tell somebody something right that second and come clean a minute ago, or something really big like the president of the United States putting his finger in the camera and saying he didn't do something that everybody knew he did and came out that, of course, he did indeed do it. Those are big lies, but it's all hypocrisy and it's all lies. What's really amazing, though, is how people are surprised by the reaction to this. People thought that Herschel Walker was just going to turn around and resign. Why? There's also credible evidence and testimony and people who have said it that President Trump has paid for abortions for people. I didn't bother them about him. None of this information about Herschel Walker is new. Didn't bother them then. If they didn't bother to Google and search their candidate ahead of time, this isn't going to change their mind, or the fact that he lied about it, or the fact that he's probably lied about other things. We're picking on Herschel Walker here, but there's other examples you can do it. And of course, his opponent has a couple of skeletons in his closet. But here's the point. It doesn't make any of it right. It doesn't make the lying right. It doesn't make what they did right. And if you start justifying it and say, well, I still need this person in this office because X, Y and Z, it's all going to come down to I want to win. We've had commentators very famously in the last few days says, I don't care about any of this. I just want to win the Senate. Can we ask an annotated list of what that got you? Well, people will say the Supreme Court because they, you know, approve the Supreme Court appointments. OK, but really stop and think for a minute. The Republican Party had the Senate as recently as two years ago. They may have a tide or have a majority coming up here soon again. These things run cyclically. Are you really wanting to go to the place where nothing matters as long as you win the Senate, which is something that even if you win it, you're not going to keep it very long, even if you keep it for two or three electoral cycles? It's just not how that works. Is the House of Representatives worth that? Is the presidency worth that? These are questions we don't ask ourselves because in the moment we just buy the lies of if we just win one more election or if we just get one more person in office or we just go one more election cycle or we just get one more political thing, then we just keep telling ourselves these lies over and over again and we're fed these lies by politicians and media people over and over again and people keep buying it. I don't know why. It never changes. It'll be another an election and another reason and another person that's unfit for office who we absolutely have to have and the country can't do without. Which we can and we should, but we won't because people would have to have accountability then. And it would start by calming down with some of our own hypocrisy. See, there it goes around to everybody. Just nobody wants to admit it. Maybe the most honest people are the ones who can admit the hypocrisy when they see it. At least the people that are saying they just want to win are being a little bit more honest about it. The rest of y'all need to find a mirror and look in it. So do I sometimes and figure this thing out that, you know what? You either mean what you say or you don't. And if what you mean changes based on needing to win an election for something that's going to be fleeting and probably not matter that much, you've got a big problem that has nothing to do with politics. More hotel right after this.
3: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
1: Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's our go-to guy when we have to talk this tech stuff, especially when it comes to tech stuff, when it intersects government, when it intersects, intersects, when it intersects legalities, when it intersects the market, all this kind of fun stuff. James Zernowski, he's great at it. Great having you back, my friend. How are you, sir?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, you're the best. Okay. It seems like we've been talking about this for the better part of the year because we've been talking about this for the better part of the year, Elon Musk is actually kind of sort of going to really for realsy this time going to buy Twitter, right? I think (laughs) it's been
0: nothing short of a turbulent time when we look at the the progression of events that, that is Elon Musk and Twitter, right? He wanted to go and buy it. Then he got a little cold feet with the bot data. Then he tried to sue Uh, to go and get that information and then twitter tried to force him to get into buying the company and now that you know the the chancery court trial is coming up soon and he's due for deposition to talk with twitter lawyers um you know he's putting out this offer to go and buy uh twitter at the original offer that he made uh contingent upon the company withdrawing their lawsuit to force him to buy twitter uh so
1: it's been a fascinating ride to say the least andrew Let's try to turn the noise down on this a little bit. James Sarnowski, our go-to guy. I love having him on. I'll just, I'm tired of talking about this particular story, to be honest. How much does the chancellor court have to do with this? Because like you said, it's coming up in two weeks. Most legal folks think that the court was going to enforce a sale in some form or fashion. How much of a factor is that, especially when you look at the timing of this thing? Yeah, I think that that was certainly a factor. I I don't know.
0: I think the the common question that was asked was even if the chancery court had said that you must go and perform your duty to honor this contract and buy Twitter, whether or not Elon would have complied with that order was certainly a question that was being raised um, because of just the sheer size. Like they've certainly done this in the past, but not to a deal of the magnitude of what Twitter would have been. Um, So I think that there was that kind of a question that was circulating in the background. But I also, part of me thinks that Elon Musk, uh, certainly as, as I think some people were aware, uh, his texts that he had exchanged with numerous people, uh, became public recently. Um, and I think that, you know, it was just something that he'd rather not go and see, uh, go and have to come out again, uh, with more, uh, and then also just his deposition too. I don't think that he wants to be in that position. I don't think his lawyers want him to be in that position um, so I think that it makes sense for him. And I've always held the position that I thought that the deal was what was the best path forward for all parties, because at the end of the day, Twitter is a company that's struggling as its current form is as it is. Right. Uh, and Elon Musk is the person that's willing to do it. And you're not going to get somebody else that's willing to pay 5420 a share uh, for Twitter right now.
1: Okay, that number is important, James Sternowski. This is the part of the story that almost nobody talked about, but you talked about, we talked about this way back when this whole saga first started. Everybody's like, well, why in the world would Twitter want to do this? It's very simple, money. Uh, Basically, I've got some data here, brother, and you can explain this to me a little better because you're better at this stuff than I am. But if you took Twitter as a standalone company with the profit loss margin it has, with what it makes, with what it brings in, it lost 221 million dollars in 2021. Its revenue was somewhere around 5 billion dollars. The stock price bounced between 31 and 69. That's because of the musk musk stuff, so it was all over the place. So a normal company, you would rate that company somewhere in the range of 13 to 15 billion dollars. he offered them 44 billion dollars. That's why the company wants to push this through. They're never going to get an offer as good as this, especially for a company it's not Facebook. It's not Meta. They're not making money hand over fist. This is the best deal they're ever going to get, probably by a factor of two or three, right? Yeah. Um, right now, if you look at it, at least by the the the
0: Dow Jones price point of Twitter versus what uh, Elon Musk offered to buy it, it's like a 20% premium uh, on the shareholder price that they want to go and offer there. And I think part of the reason why Elon made that aggressive offer is that it was a way to counter a defense that Twitter might have employed to stop him from getting the deal um, because they have a fiduciary responsibility to present this to shareholders. And if they're going to go and say no to the deal, they would have had to have come up with another plan for it. And I think that when Musk made the offer, he did, it was in part to try to force their hand to not really be able to employ some of those strategies. Um, so I think that, When we're looking at it, yeah, Twitter, you know, especially if the Musk deal fell apart and he had to go and pay all kinds of fines and fees and breakups, uh, you would not find a buyer for Twitter that was going to go and pay 40 some odd billion dollars for it. So, yeah, this was a bet. This was a great deal for Twitter, uh, obviously. And now, assuming that everything goes and and moves forward, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all transpires.
1: Yeah, James Janowski joining us. All right. Everybody wants to project what's going to happen. Let's assume Elon Musk does take over the company, or at least on paper is the owner of the company. Let me play the other side of this because I'm more Elon skeptical than you are. Mm -hmm. Let me pitch it to you this way. Elon Musk, we have quite a bit of book on him publicly now. He chases shiny objects. He gets obsessed with something for periods of time, and then he moves on to some other obsession for a period of time. He's kind of taken some lumps on this. He's taken some black eyes on this. This has gone on way longer than they thought. Is part of this possible that he does take over the company, but he also kind of loses interest in it, and it and it's going to hurt financially because he's paying a lot of money for it. He's you know he hears stuff like this. Is there a possibility that he does buy this but ends up staying rather hands off with it for the foreseeable future, and there may not be a huge amount of change, at least notable change, anytime soon? yeah I, I think that this is actually where we have a little bit more
0: agreement than than you might realize because i don't want elon being very hands-on on twitter because he's already running starlink he's already running tesla the man is running like a chicken out his head on uh trying to go and, and manage all of this and adding on twitter on top of that which are, which is in a radically different vector of business types uh i think that that would not be great for twitter Tesla or Starlink. And I think for Elon, the best strategy moving forward, and it remains to be seen that this is what he does, but I think that he needs to identify people that, you know, he believes in his vision and that he thinks that they can go and execute on that vision that he has for the company. Um which apparently is an everything app, whatever that means. So uh, I, I think that if I were if I were in his shoes and if I'm even just an outside investor or, or a person that's like looking at this elsewhere, I would want to see Elon not necessarily being so directly involved. Maybe he has a, obviously a role on the board and, uh, you know, keeps appraised of matters that way. But I think that it's in his best interest to let other people run it uh, and try to execute his vision for this app.
1: Yeah, James Arnowski joining us. I I think there's a part to that because running a social media platform as big as this, it takes an army of engineers to do this. The minutiae and the data sets and what it actually does, I think he's going to get bored with it. I don't think he's going to want to really get hands on with some of that. stuff. I think he probably ends up delegating some of this. Uh, One other thing towards that point, though, you were tweeting about this and I thought your point was excellent. You were responding to Ben Collins, who's uh, MSNBC's tech reporter. A lot of people freaking out about Musk in the political and cultural sense, owning Twitter. I'm more concerned about it because I think he's erratic as a business leader more than his politics. A lot Mm. of people are worried about the politics of it. You made a great point and you said everybody needs to calm down. I'm quoting you here. You are putting way too much stock in Twitter. Only about 25 percent of Americans use Twitter and a fraction of that, which would include folks like you because he's a professional reporter. Uh, as are we adjacently, we must point out, produce over 99% of all the content on the site. Twitter is not real life. Stop. I agree with you on this. I love Twitter. I see that there could be a potential problem because of the way Musk conducts himself. But I also understand Twitter's mostly it's almost there's an institutional part of Twitter that drives most of Twitter that's going to react to Musk. I'm not sure Musk is really going to be able to control it. I think everybody probably does need to calm down a little bit as far as the doom and gloom, don't you? Yo,
0: absolutely. And I've always been very consistent on this point. I think that Republicans are probably holding it up as a as a holy grail a little too much. And I think Democrats think of it as like a meteor way too much. I think that a Moscow on Twitter is going to look different than Twitter in its current form naturally, because it's a different ownership team uh, that's going to be handling things. So that's, there's going to be some divergence, but I don't think it's going to be some radical departure from what we're seeing right now, I think it would be a lot closer to what Twitter is right now than it is going to be, let's say, from like a parlor, uh, which is where you start hearing some of the the lichens getting dropped when when he talks about this or people talking about this deal. More broadly speaking, I don't think that that's what we would see here. I think that, you know, Elon does want to allow for more discussion to be up more broadly speaking but i don't necessarily think that that means that this turns into a cesspool platform and again to to the point i do think that people put too much stock into what goes on on twitter in terms of the impact it has on elections etc that's just a personal feeling i'm not sure that that's like you know something that can be bore out by the data but i wouldn't be surprised uh you know if if it didn't have as much of an impact as people thought it did
1: yeah. And I, first of all, I'm biased here because I love Twitter. That's my primary platform. I do everything on. That's what kind of got me into all the things we're doing, including doing this show and my writing stuff. I want it to continue kind of as it is. I also know it can't just business wise and technology wise, but I think we all need to have a little bit of faith here. And I'm, I'm, I'm an Elon skeptic. So I, I'm concerned, but I don't think we should pay a gate. Plus he's going to have a lot of eyeballs on him when they have those first couple of meetings and they see what's in, because here's the thing. When I, he says, Oh, well, make this happen. Then he's going to get a you know six hundred slide PowerPoint of okay. Here's all the technical stuff we need to make that happen. And then things change. That doesn't make for good copy, but that's how those things go, isn't it? You're you do the backside of this. That's what doesn't get reported on, and that's going to be kind of a guardrail in its own fact. That look, this this is a massive platform. It's not going to change overnight, even if you wanted to. No, you're absolutely right. That's always one of the chief problems. Like, it's very easy to be a critic
0: as an armchair CEO. It's a lot different to be in charge of the ship in question here. Uh, To your point, there's a lot of technical difficulties that come with managing uh, social media companies that I don't think necessarily translate over to the other companies that he works on right now. I think that, you know, those kinds of problems are unique. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he goes and tackles those issues. But to your point, uh, you know, you like Twitter as it is. I certainly don't necessarily have much issue with Twitter as it is. But my my running thing that I like to tell people about this is, you know, because some people wanted to go and say, well, Twitter was like one of the best platforms for civil, uh, civil management of like, you know, hate speech, etc., And I'm like, well, you can only be who you can afford to be, and Twitter could not afford to be the company that it is right now. And that's why you're seeing the change that's going to likely come should Elon Musk uh, actually take over Twitter. So that's just the reality of the situation. You, You can really only afford to be who you can actually be, right?
1: Yeah, and I'm right where I've been. Uh, I love the SpaceX stuff. I'm skeptical of the Tesla stuff, and I'm kind of apprehensive about Twitter, but we'll see where it goes. I'll try to keep an open mind. You keep pitching Elon Musk to me, though, and I'll keep fighting back, and we'll keep having great conversations about it. James Arnowski, you're the best buddy. You've been very in demand because you're just that good. Let folks know what you've got going on, where you've been, until we get you back on Hertel again real, real soon. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've just been traveling around doing the circuit, talking about the good the good Lord stuff of uh, tech policy and what's going on. You can follow me on Twitter at JamesCZ19. Always a pleasure talking with you, my friend, and look forward to coming on soon again.
1: Yeah, we're going to have to dish out this uh, 230 thing because everybody's losing their mind and they don't understand that this this Supreme Court hearing is going to be very narrowly focused to terrorism. So we're going to dig into that one with you pretty soon. James Arnowski, follow him, listen to him. He's got good stuff. Great talking to you, my friend. Great talking to you. Take care, sir. Ah, right. uh, welcome back to tell. Okay, she did so well last time. We invited her back because she does great work. Very insightful. Have a great time talking to her. She is an opinion columnist. Uh, For the Denver Post, she's out there in beautiful Colorado, God's country up there. That's a lot higher than the mountains I grew up with, my friend. How are you?
2: I am doing great, and uh, yeah, leaves are starting to change. It's finally getting a little bit cooler here. We had a super hot summer, so glad to see things cool down.
1: Yeah, it's people. You know, I grew up in the mountains. One of the nice things about the mountains is you get four really distinct seasons. Like there, there, there's not a whole lot of overlap. It's like, oh, it's snowing today oh, it's really hot today, and that's one of the great things. Of course, my my Appalachian Mountains are not the Rockies. They're, I just had this conversation with my daughter last night because she's going to be going out to Colorado for a wedding. And I was like, no, this is very different, and then it's even different than like the Alps, which is just like a rock wall coming at you, but uh, love it out there. Okay, y'all got some stuff going on out there. You've been writing about it. Two different columns, and when I say different, I mean way different columns. Uh, let's start talking about... Uh, <laughs> douglas county colorado apparently has a little bit of problems with exposed female breasts but when you dig into it and you get past your well-written headline and lead are we really still arguing over the rocky horror picture show after 47 years
2: you know a little bit right so yeah D- doug Coe has been in the news a couple of times for for boobs basically uh first there was a a pride fest done on their fairgrounds in which a transvestites fake boob was revealed and that caused a bunch of brouhaha. Now there is uh, the art center is going to do Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I guess there was a glimpse, very you know, short two second boob debut somewhere in that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, so I don't know where the boob is, but it's somewhere in there. And so they decided they had to change their city ordinances to comply with a court case. In another city in northern Colorado, that said that uh, you cannot differentiate between male and female breasts, and that if men can go topless in the park, so can women. So they've changed their ordinances to make them gender neutral. And I kind of attack the piece in saying this you know, there are a lot of things, a lot of rules in society that aren't against actual harm. Like, I mean, do not kill, do not steal, obviously, those make sense. But there are also rules, be it cultural rules or actual ordinances and laws, talking about sort of time and place. You know, when, when should the female breast be seen? Um, and I kind of make the case that time and place rules, be it cultural or actual laws, do have their place. And, you know, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that the people who most want to be seen naked are usually the people you don't want to see naked. And I, I actually think not having people running around topless at the park is probably a good thing.
1: Yeah, but you are well traveled, Krista. for joining us. Uh, you're well traveled, so you understand. And you touching this on your piece, every culture is very, very different when it comes to this. Uh, I lived in Europe for a long time. There is no stigma to most in most places now. There's things like you know business settings, government buildings, places like that. You get a park, you go to an amusement park, a patch of grass with some sunshine, there is no stigma to this. It's, it's allowed, it's excused, nobody really thinks twice about it. And if you do, you're basically showing that you're a foreigner or a stupid American and why do you have a problem with this? So this is very much a cultural construct thing. How do we attack it from that angle? Because, look, there's a lot that goes into this. People want to put morality on it. People have religious convictions about the body. People have their own insecurities about the body, and then those insecurities get projected. When you go to something, though, like a public ordinance, which is kind of a, you know, semi-law to hardcore law, depending on enforcement, that's a lot of stuff to try to put down into just how somebody should or shouldn't be dressed, isn't it?
2: It is, but I, you know, I think about why do we actually have these time and place rules? And you think about time and place, like, I don't, you know, if you, if there's a topless beach, if I'm with girlfriends, you know, I, I, I can go topless on a topless beach. I don't care. Uh, but I, that said, I don't think that having a topless woman at a kid's playground is a good idea. Now, is that because there's something inherently wrong with the female breast? No. Uh, but time and place rules are sensitive about what will be distracting and detracting for other people. So I give an example in the, in the piece of when I travel abroad, particularly developing countries, countries in, in Africa or Asia, I don't hug and kiss dogs and horses the way I do here. Uh, When I'm in, you know, here in the States, I can't, you know, I see a dog, I pet that dog, I hug that dog. um, I kiss dogs. I was riding this weekend up in the mountains. I, you know, kiss the heck out of that horse. The horses love to have their head smooched. It's, it's something that I do here, but I don't do it when I'm abroad. Why? Because in those cultures, kissing animals is considered offensive. I don't do it. Because if I did do it, you know, the earth wouldn't fall apart, but I would be distracting other people. I would be detracting from their experience. And so what this really comes down to with time and place rules is, are you doing something that is distracting and detracting to other people? And if it is, then, then don't do it. There's no reason to just unnecessarily offend people. Now, I don't have a problem with tweaking the overly offended, overly sensitive, trigger happy person out there that just wants to clutch their pearls at every turn. I, you know, I don't mind messing with that person. It's kind of fun. But the average person, I don't need to go out of my way to offend people. And so yeah, I don't I don't care if there's a a a, a boob in a movie at a theater that is mostly adults. But you know what I'd say, keep it under covers when you're at the park.
1: Yeah, Krista K for joining us. That's why I found the Rocky Horror Picture Show element of this so amazing. So for the uninitiated, I don't want to give it all away because, you know, th- this can be a fun thing for the people that don't know what they're walking into. Usually around mm-hmm. this time of the year, because, you know, Halloween, you have showings of Rocky Horror. This is not going to a normal movie. This is an event. It's interactive. It's very much audience participation, especially if you sucker somebody into going that doesn't know what's going on. And then they get really participated, whether, you know, mandatory fun kind of a thing. There's a lot that goes on in the showing of a Rocky horror, a, brief glimpse of nipple on the screen i would think would probably be in the 80s or 90s on the list of things that could possibly be offensive that goes on at these things and this is all consenting adults let's so not you know nobody's getting assaulted or going to the hospital or anything but it, it's raunchy good clean adult fun i just mm-hmm. always amazed at and you touch on it on on in the piece whether it's somebody topless in a park whether it's the rocky horror picture show why in the world do we tolerate politicians who want to grab these small outlier things that, in a vacuum, are not that big a deal, and now all of a sudden that's what we want to make a rule or a law or an ordinance over? That's kind of the real problem here, beyond just you know somebody exposing a little flesh, right?
3: Well,
2: I think yeah, there's definitely a sort of throw red meat to the crowd at election time kind of a thing where you pick out something that a very small minority of people is going to be upset about. I though no, I think on this. In this particular issue, so you have the, the city of Parker is in Douglas County. Douglas County, you've got three commissioners, two of which are these pearl-clutcher types that you know got upset about the pride fest and the transvestite rubber boob, and so they're upset about it. Then you get Parker with a more, probably a, a less conservative city council who's like, oh... Uh, you know, we've got this this picture coming. We need to tweak these laws. Well, did they really need to tweak the laws? Could they have just done the show? Probably just done the show. Um, I think they were doing this to sort of show it to the commissioners. And that's just my opinion. It's this kind of little, I call it, let's call it a tit for tat, virtue signaling. Um, I I just feel like we should have better things to do. Um, and I I think the whole female nudity thing is not really resolved, It's there's a couple of different court, uh, court uh, decisions at the appellate level. So maybe it goes to the Supreme Court and they have to rule on it. In the meanwhile, I just, I kind of wish people would be more, I don't know, either sensitive about the feelings of others and kind of on the other side, less trigger happy themselves. Uh, if you don't like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, don't go. Um, if you don't want to, if you don't like Pride Fest, don't go uh you know but on the other hand those people should have a reasonable expectation that if they're at a playground everyone's going to have their shirt on
1: um krista k for joining us for people that aren't familiar with colorado though let's zoom out because again you you get it like we just said you get into these little niche things give us the big picture of colorado though because the culture war stuff colorado's always been kind of a fault line for the last 20 30 years cuz You're the headquarters for a lot of different, you know, very conservative religious organizations. And you also have an openly gay governor. Like this is not new stuff in Colorado. Give us the big picture view of kind of the culture war side of politics and culture in Colorado, because that's really the overall environment that this stuff is happening in. And then people want to pick their little things for the war. Give people that perspective, the wider perspective of what's going on. Because this is a changing state. It's very much kind of a purplish, maybe leaning more towards blue lately state politically. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on in Colorado with this
2: stuff. So Colorado is an interesting state. So more than a third is mountainous. More than a third is plains, completely flat. And then we have this zone down on the front range, which is where I live. So that's Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, Pueblo. Most of the population is in this zone that's right between the plains, and the mountains. I can get into the mountains in a half hour drive, but right now I'm looking at a, you know, flat lawn if I look out my window. So the state when I grew up was kind of libertarian, you know, there was some liberalism in Boulder. Boulder's kind of famous for being liberal. You had conservatives down in Colorado Springs, but it was a lot more moderate, just, you know, kind of a get-along place. Now those two sides tend to kind of force the extremes on each side. It's almost like being present in the same place. They have to be even more liberal and more conservative. That said, the state really is a spectrum still. You've got conservatives, you've got liberals, you've got very extreme people, we have got an actual, I I think she's a, she calls herself either a socialist or a communist, I can't remember, on the Denver City Council. So you have some very left-leaning politicians you have some some diehard Trumpy people on the right as well. And then a lot of sort of normal people in the middle going, please, let's just let's just chill out a little bit. Um, but it is, it's an interesting state. And I think if I could opposites sort are of together, in some ways bring out the worst on both sides.
1: for joining us columnist for the denver post all right like any good columnist you take a wide swath of what you talk about so let's uh go from uh Baird breast and <laughs> tim curry in a sequined corset to pig farming yeah you're writing about you wrote about the gestational crates let's do a little perspective here i want you to explain what these things are i actually know what these are um i've been to like the smithfield plant i know what these things look like somebody that hadn't seen them though because Smithfield, which is the largest pork producer in the world, they said in 2007 they were going to get rid of these things. They said in to- 2018 they were going to get rid of these things. We're still in 2020. They still haven't gotten rid of these things. I'm not just picking on them. A lot of the other c- companies are doing it as well, but they're just the biggest. Why is it that we're, you know, 15 years into them saying they haven't done this? They still haven't got rid of them. Explain what they, what they are, why business-wise they want to use them, and why it's being so hard for this industry to get away from these things
2: they're cheaper, basically. Um, and you think about like uh animal husbandry. Up until the '80s, they really didn't use these things very much. Uh, uh, it became kind of these big factory farms where you start to have inhumane confinement because it's cheaper. And I should say this: I I am a meat eater. I will eat pretty much in any kind of you know farmed meat. I love game. Um, you know, I always tell people I will try. I have chicken so i'll trade fresh eggs and homemade jam if you bring me ducks and geese that's my favorite Uh, but i'll eat any basically any kind of meat and so i'm not against meat eating what i am against is inhumane treatment of animals be it putting you know chickens in tiny crates uh confining these sows in tiny crates for the basically their entire life uh it's inhumane um i know it's more expensive to raise meat, particularly chickens and pork uh, in giving animals some space to live. I know it's more expensive and, and I think we ought to pay, pay the price. Uh, These, these gestation crates are that cruel. So when the sow is pregnant and she's usually just going to be pregnant much of her life, so she's in this tiny crate where she cannot move around. She can't inter, you know, interact with other pigs. If she lays down a certain way, there's a chance that the crate, the pig in the crate next to her could like lay on her leg and break it. Um, she's on metal slats, uh, you know, so that the poop and whatnot goes through the slats, but some of it still ends up on the slats. So she's basically her own stuff all day. She can eat and drink and that's about it. She can't really move that much. They become listless. Uh, these are intelligent animals. They're, they're about as the smart as dogs, maybe smarter. And then she goes from that crate to a farrowing crate, has her babies, they get weaned off. She gets rebred and she's back in the gestation crate. In order to get away from these crates, you have to go to facilities where you have a bunch of sows in a, in a space and you have to work with those sows to make sure that some sows don't bully away all of the food from the other sows. So it's a little more work. It, It takes more money to put together. Um, a space where you've got multiple, multiple pigs, but, you know, animals are not widgets. You can't just, you know, say, Oh, our, our pig factory, this widget is, is too old. We'll swap her out for a new widget. These are animals and they need to be treated with a certain amount of humanity. And I know the pork producers will say, well, Hey, you feel that way. You should just go to Whole Foods and buy humanely raised pork, which I, you know, I'm at that point where that's if I buy pork, that's going to be what I buy. I, I think we have to go beyond that and just say these these practices are cruel. It doesn't matter that I don't beat my dog; I don't want my neighbor beating his dog. Um, at some point, we have to have some standards.
1: Yeah, Krista Kay, for joining us. Like, look, I've got. I'm blessed. I know some friends. I've got my pork guy. That when I really want good pork, he runs a small family farm. Old retired, you know, used to be a sailor. Good guy. He's, I've wrote about him before. Tim, how you doing, Tim? I need bacon, buddy. You know, he free ranges his hogs. His line is my pigs only have one bad day their whole life. And he prides himself on that. They wild feed other than they, get you know, mash from the distilleries when they go to fatten them up a little bit. Right now they get the pumpkins, which is a great viral video because he gets everybody's wasted pumpkins and they just lose their minds. That's like crack to the pigs. He can tell me the name and disposition of the pig I'm eating. And I can tell the quality, you know, I'm a big foodie. Everybody knows about mm-hmm. Twitter. So I can tell the difference. Huge difference in the quality, but he also only provides, you know, four or five, six times a year. I can maybe get that. That's not scalable to feeding people. I'm not going to stop eating pork. I understand we need industrialized food production and animal husbandry because otherwise you would have a starving planet. So I don't want to do the elitist thing with that. And I'm not going to stop eating meat. However, there's some basic stuff like, you know, like having pens instead of that. Yeah, it's a little more expensive. Smithfield, a couple of years ago, they had this whole thing where their pigs were literally going crazy and they had this animal rights activist come in. They go, all you need to do is once every couple hours, somebody just walk through the pens. They didn't even have to physically do anything. They just had to walk through the pen and it settled the animals down. Some of this stuff, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the animal husbandry. wheel. some of this stuff is pretty simple, like, you know, let them have some outside time. Let them have some move around time. I find this all to be reasonable stuff. I understand it's a profit margin business, but I think we know too much. We have too much technology. We can see through our phones the food where we're getting it. I think we as a society has a right to demand some better standards, especially since it's all on video and we're right in front of us. I don't have a problem with any of this. I think we should have a little better gild on where our food comes from and how it's produced, and we should be loud about it.
2: Yeah, I agree. And so the reason I wrote this piece is that the Supreme court is going to rule on this during their next session. And so we've got California has decided that, and this is by referendum, that they not only don't allow gestation crates, they don't want any meat brought into the state that's made with gestation. Uh, that's made through this this tech I'll call it technology, this kind of animal husbandry. They don't want any of that. Uh, they don't want any of that brought into the state. Pork producers are saying, well, we, you know, we can't just produce this kind of pork for you and not have to alter all of our other practices, which is going to make pork a lot more expensive. And I read a bunch of uh, Amicus briefs. They actually could do that just for California if they wanted to, there is the technology available. But I would like to see the industry just upgrade their facilities, treat these, these animals as animals, not as widgets in a machine. I mean, we talked earlier, my my Jeep's at the at the mechanic right now, it's turning 200,000 miles. It's kind of a it's a, it's a birthday tune-up. And any part that's sort of put in or taken, out, those are just parts, they're inanimate objects, it doesn't matter. These sows are not inanimate objects, they're living beings that need to be given some quality of life while they're alive. And, and so I, I hope that the court rules on behalf of California, as much as that kills me to say, Colorado and California have a little bit of a rivalry, but, you know, we, we do need better standards and it, it's not that we've always done it this way. This way of doing things really just goes back to the, to the eighties. Uh, before that you saw a lot more animals in larger pens, animals that are free ranged. Um, I, I think, I think we can do better.
1: Krista K for joining us. There's a couple things about this I want to point out on the political side of it though, because people are like, oh, California's making it because California's got some other rules like this where they're trying to enforce it on everybody mm-hmm. that I don't agree with. There's a couple points on this. One. This was a referendum. This isn't just some you know, they voted on this. To be, you know, I'm, I'm still a re- Democratic Republic guy. Even if I don't agree with it, people voted on it. So it's got to be respected. That's one. one. Number two, I'm going to go back to what I already talked about. Smithfield, which is the biggest pork producer, Um, Now, majority owned by overseas interests, mostly China. They've been saying since 2007, they were going to stop doing this anyway. And then they've been dragging their feet because they wanted the PR without actually having to do it. So that with the court and that's going to be part of this court case, too, because they take those sort of things. in. So whatever the court ruling here is, we can't just say, oh, this is California enforcing their thing. This is one of those things where the industry itself is saying, no, we shouldn't do this, but they're still doing it anyway. I think that's an important difference when we talk about because, you know, look, I'm 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 always I start skeptical with the regulations like, okay prove to me why we need this. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: This one one feels a little different because it was it was not only a referendum. It's something that the industry itself is saying they should have been doing for the last 15, 20 years anyway. This looks like a clear place of regulation to step in and go, look, you're saying you should do this. You haven't done it. The people want it. The industry wants Mm -hmm. it. It's got a moral component. Let's do it. That feels like a good regulation to me now, of course, that can still get abused. But on the face of it,
2: I think this is a step forward. I think so, too. And you think it, it? law follows cultural trends, generally speaking, and the culture is moving away from these big factory farms where animals are treated like widgets and not living beings. And, you know, everybody, you know, a lot of these entities, these these big uh, industries that put out press releases, as you said, we're getting away from these. A number of businesses like Starbucks and you know ConAgra have also put out press releases saying, we are not going to buy pork uh, from producers who use these gestation crates. So I think this just sort of backs up where we're already going. And just the recognition that there are better ways to handle animals. Um, I'm lucky, I think we're lucky with, with beef. Most beef cattle spend, spend their life, at least a good large part of their life out on range. Um, they're only in pens when they're kind of fattening up on corn before slaughter. So those animals are treated relatively well. But when you look at chickens, particularly meat chickens, also egg layers and and pigs, there's just ways to go there in terms of allowing some quality of life for the animals that that we eat.
1: Yeah, and Chris Decay for joining us. And the other part of this, too, is one reason I'm slow on regulation is because I, I am sensitive to a bur- putting undue burden on a business or an, an industry. The burden here, though, is the reason they do the gestational crates is they don't want to pay the extra manpower to take care of the animals. So this actually would probably create more jobs and more opportunities in that respect, because they're going to have to hire people to handle these animals because they're going to be moved. That's why they cha- train. That's why they do this. They can control them with less people and less things. So there's that element to it. Krista K for always good enjoying it. I love, I, I was teasing you, but I love that you do various stuff like this for us to point out and debate and hash out. Uh, you're at the post, let folks know where they can keep up and follow you until we get you back, which we will do. Definitely want to hear more about this Jeep. You're going to have to write that one up for us. Let us know where you're at, what you got going on until we see you again on her tail.
2: So you can follow me at, at Krista K for on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm there sometimes. And then I've got my Denver post, Column, you can just you know Google Denver Post, and then I've got a Substack. I basically take my post piece, and about three or four days later, put it up on the Substack. So if you don't, if you want to get past the paywall, that's the way to do it. My my Substack is Anomalous Take, which is kind of an anomalous title for a Substack, but uh, you can find my stuff there. And, and anyway, thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, we really enjoy it. All right, last thing, real quick, favorite Rocky Horror Picture Show song and number.
2: I can't, you know, it's been, it's been years. Okay. Sing, sing a couple of bars.
1: <laughs> that That is not going to happen. Um, no. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying uh, yeah, it's my exactly. show and I do what I want, but I'm not doing that.
2: <laughs> it's funny. Like wait, the minute I thought, I was like, hey, which of my favorite songs? Cause was, you know, when you're young and you go to that show a lot, you, you sing all the songs. And then for some reason, when I was young, I was also into that musical hair. And I think I have all of those songs me- memorized, but you know, as you get older, the files start to mix. So the minute you ask me, Lord, one of my favorite songs from Hair popped in my mind.
1: I think I still got to go with "Bless My Soul" because the whole thing of Meatloaf showing up doing this show-stealing number and then they kill him—it's just too pert. Like it's just it did. It, it's so ridiculous. Uh, God bless and, him. We lost him last year. Didn't I love- we? we- yeah. I know.
2: I'm so sad that we lost him. I love meatloaf.
1: Yeah. My morning alarm is uh, the, uh, the pipe organ opening to a uh, home by now, no matter what, that's been the alarm on my phone for probably 10 years now. Love it. All right. Krista K we'll let you off the hook on that one. Go bone up on your, uh, Rocky horror picture music. And we'll talk soon. My friend
2: sounds good. Have a great day.
1: Thank you so much. For Heard Tell. We'd love to hear from Heard Tell show at the twitter.com Hertel show on Gmail. If you want to send us an email, we've done whole segments just based off what y'all want to see or what you think we need to cover. Or you didn't like how somebody else covered it, or you want to give us a little pushback. We take all that. Love to hear from you. Also, however you're watching and or listening to the program, make sure you leave a rating and a comment and share us on your social media. We'd sure appreciate it. Uh, this is all for you. And y'all have been so great in supporting us. Had another great week of more growth. Thank you so very much. So until we see you again wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Talk to you again real soon for more Tell. All the music on Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.
3: It's